0: Do you think George will make up new food?
1: Well, there's the point that uh, when you read the books, all those exquisite descriptions of food and feasting and all that sort of stuff is all, in my, I think it's intended to be like, look at all these people like eating off the high hog while all these extremely wealthy people eating off the high hog while they're, the small folk and the peasants suffer and starve, and it's all coming down to a crashing end when winter arrives with the... Uh, the others and snow and all that sort of stuff. So
2: there will be no food.
1: Right. Even the highborn won't be able to eat as well as he won't be able to eat really.
2: No matter how much Sansa has prepared us all. That's right. Everyone will be starving.
1: Well, you, Zach, did you end up reading the uh, that Sansa wins chapter in your when you were reading through the chapters? I haven't been able to read it yet. Oh man! I know. Okay. So small spoiler. There's this whole scene where Sansa gets baked the largest lemon cake that's ever been baked before that's perfect <laughs> i know right <laughs> i think that's exactly what it i was wondering when i asked smile. you that but yeah that's supposed to demonstrate like you have all these people like eating off the land and winters here and nobody's in the middle of war nobody's planted anything and now everybody's going to starve to death come the uh the
0: winds of winter do you think that the, we'll still have that juxtaposed when we cut back to cersei and king's landing and oh yeah maybe i some stuff still,
1: i really hope it'll be snowing in king's
0: landing well the snow was falling remember
1: yeah, it's falling at the end uh, it's was it knee deep
0: in the dance with dragons epilog. This is why I've wanted to talk to you so much about season 7 and specifically the things that you know, we haven't been able to see from a song of ice and fire yet, which is obviously season 7, but particularly how did you feel when the snow started falling at the end of season 7 in King's Landing?
1: It was my favorite scene of the entire season. I thought cinematography, the music, the way they framed the shot was just beautiful. And it also was even better because it had my favorite character, that favorite character being Jamie Lannister, you know, riding away from King's Landing and all dressed in black. So there was a great color contrast between Jamie finally out of his Kingsguard whites and into black as the white snow is falling all around him and the wind is picking up. It was just a I, I Love that scene. It was my favorite scene the entire season, even though if it was only about 25, 30 seconds or so.
2: And 25 or 30 seconds from the end. I'm so happy that you <laughs> said that.
1: <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was terrific. I, I thought, um, was, was there a catch line, right? Winner is here mm-hmm. for for the whole season. HBO and Game of Thrones is catch catchphrase, rather. Finally having that come in King's Landing, because one of the things I, I was thinking is early on in the season, like when they were in the Reach and they were fighting um, the Targaryens and the Dragons... It's like, man, this would have been so much better if there was snow on the ground, and it would have been such a much more uh, appealing visual than just you know, kind of the the whole ground is dry, things seem like they're normal. But uh, no, it was, it was awesome. It was great to have to finally have uh, that snow falling around King's Landing, which is an event in the books that takes place um, towards towards the end of the published books that we have right now. So seeing that in King's Landing is cool, and I'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to play that out come season eight
0: i remember in the early stages of of us putting together a feast with dragons that was something you specifically pointed out to me i wasn't even there in the read-through yet and you were like by the way (laughs) the epilogue and snow falling and the thematic weight that it brings i was so happy to see it adapted into the new season and i thought of you when it happened i was like jeff is going to I don't know how he feels about the whole season. That's why you're here. But also, I know he's going to love this
1: part. Oh, yeah. I loved it. Also, we were doing that Feast with Dragons. We were putting that together. It was in the middle of a blizzard here in in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland. So the the visual was very- Very thematic. Very thematic, yeah. Very uh, congruent with with what we were talking about. And there was you know three feet of snow on the ground. It was blowing everywhere in the- uh, Around where I
2: was. Well, Jeff, we can't wait to get into specifics on what you loved about season seven as a whole. And I know we've got a couple of different questions and specific oh, characters, yeah. including Jamie, that we want to dive oh, into. Yes. But we just wanted to <laughs> bye, welcome bye. everybody back to our podcast, Game of Thrones. It's been a little while. We're going to wrap up the end of season seven with our good friend, Jeff, Brendan B. Fish. He is all over the internet. So you can find him. We'll talk at the end of the <laughs> episode on, on where you can find him. But We've already started talking about that moment with Jamie. Do we just dive in, I guess, to the season as a whole and kind of overall thoughts before we get back into the granular of specific moments and characters that we liked?
0: I think it's probably a good idea. I don't know if all of our listeners read your Twitter feed. I hope not. (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) It's very disappointing. Uh, How did you feel about season seven overall?
1: Overall, I thought that season seven was good. Uh, it wasn't my favorite season that Game of Thrones has done. Um, I think that a lot of the things that i liked in season seven was where the show slowed down and allowed us as the watchers to enjoy the moments, these big character moments. Um, thinking about things like Arya and Sansa in the crypts of Winterfell was, again, uh, was one of my favorite scenes this season. Jamie. Looking back at King's Landing dressed in black while snow was falling around and, was in, like I said, was my favorite moment of the entire season. Um, those things I really enjoyed. The things that kind of te- tampered my um, enjoyment of the season is where things really, really sped up uh, in terms of the storyline. And, and as I was watching, I was kind of thinking, you know... Th- they made it seven episodes this season, but this this season could have easily been 10 episodes for the amount of, of ground that they were trying to cover, both mm-hmm. thematically, character-wise, and also plot-wise. And I don't know if you guys got that impression, too, that you felt that things might have been a little bit too rushed at points, or whether it was something that you enjoyed moving from, from point A to point B very, very quickly. And I know that some people like that, where you don't have these long travelogue scenes where you have characters on a boat or on horses or walking around somewhere. Did you guys enjoy the faster pace or did you enjoy kind of the more slower pace that you might see in something like season one, season two, or season three specifically?
2: I think that for me, the faster pace allowed me to enjoy even more these slower moments. And I've talked about this before, but I just wasn't expecting a lot of these long character. There's so many scenes in this season Um where we just spend minutes kind of sitting there. Like I think about when Littlefinger was sentenced and when Theon jumped in the water after everything that happened with Euron and Yara. We had a lot of smaller moments that we got to really spend time in the space. And I think that because everything else was sped up, as you're kind of saying, Jeff, that made those moments more beautiful and enjoyable to me. Because I would say that overall, I like that long, spaced out, storytelling and, and kind of that's why we all I think fell in love with the series in the first place so it was definitely a bit of a change of pace for me <laughs> um sure but it, it made me appreciate I think some of those reasons why we fell in love with the way they portray the show in the first place
0: and I think for me it was just a refamiliarization with Game of Thrones as a whole because I don't watch it consistently in the off season, but I'm familiar with how they flow because we covered on the podcast and I think we have somewhat close of a episode by episode memory of how things go and how seasons flow but this was different than the seasons before not only because it was limited but because a lot of those creative choices that deal with speed i think were boldly done were more so boldly done than they've done before and there's probably many reasons figuratively those reasons might actually be stronger literally things about just money or fitting it in or just i don't know simplifying the script i can't be sure where it goes but i think one of the reasons why we're all so quick to bring it up or talk about it as a highlight or a point of season seven is because it felt so different than the seasons you were talking about jeff and i think we had to kind of get used to it you know what i mean
1: no i I i agree that it's it was a change of pace and it's um do you guys know Alan Seipenwell? Mm-hmm. I'm probably messing up his name. It's the I think is New York Times television critic. He was saying that when you've been watching season seven, it's a different show almost completely from what you would see in earlier seasons. And I don't 100% agree with that that analysis in that there are still moments in the season which... Feel very congruent with what you saw back in 2011 when season one was was first airing,
0: like the stuff Hannah was talking about, mm-hmm.
1: right? But there was a lot of these fast paced moving plot lines and places that I thought it really excelled at were things like um, you know the loot train battle, which is a dumb name, but still, <laughs> it's
0: it was a great. You like the sense of space there, right? You enjoyed the way they put it together.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And and getting you know Jamie and Bron and the Tarleys and the whole Lannister army <laughs> quickly from High Garden to outside of King's Landing where Daenerys confronts him was was a good artistic choice because it allows us to have this really good battle, which is probably one of the I I keep going back and forth on which which one which battle in this in the show is my favorite, but it's it's up there probably in the top three at this point. Because I've rewatched that battle scene probably three or four times now and I've really, really enjoyed that. Places that it might not make as much that I didn't enjoy it as much were things like where the where the party went north beyond the wall and you have Daenerys coming to rescue them in very short order in a way that felt very incongruent in with what you know the realistic setting that they've set the story in, where you have a character that's fifteen hundred miles south of where events are taking place, north of the Wall, coming to rescue them at the last minute. And I understand that the last minute scenes are um, very cinematic and they're very uh, tense in terms of the plot because you don't know well you don't know quote unquote that. Danny is coming this to, to save them. But it did have an impact in that it didn't feel realistic, I guess. And, and when I watch Game of Thrones and when I read A Song of Ice and Fire, the thing that grabs me is the realism embedded in this massive fantasy world. And when that realism is suspended, I have kind of a harder time enjoying some of those aspects of the storytelling, if that makes sense.
2: Like when Ed Sheeran pops on your screen. <laughs>
1: I did not really mind just Ed like Sheeran. Who is I that that? Was,
2: no, I know who Ed Sheeran
1: is. I'm I have like, a daughter now. Yeah, right, I have, I have a one-year-old now. So, uh, but no, Ed Sheeran. I thought that that scene was one of those scenes that I really enjoyed, where you had Arya, you know, talking with these Lannister soldiers, and you're finding out that these guys are—they're just everyday dudes, right? You know, you have the one guy whose father's a fisherman, and you have the other guy who's turns out to be Ed Sheeran, who's this fantastic singer, um, singing great songs, and uh, that's canon, though. It is. One of the things that I've done in my in my past life is being deployed and being with soldiers. And the the people that I saw in the Lannister Army reminded me of these guys. They're not you know, superheroes. They're not Jon Snow or Jamie Lannister or Daenerys Targaryen. They're just everyday Joes that come out and are forced to... Some of them are forced, some of them volunteer to, to fight on behalf of a cause that they may or may not understand all that well.
0: So thematically, Big Head, Little Head are nailing a lot of the elements from A Song of Ice and Fire you like while oh, yeah. some of the mechanic choices in season seven completely pulls you out of the story.
1: Some of them do, yeah. And some of them, some of the, even the choices that pull me out of the story, I understand why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, I also understand some of the, the realistic choices they have to make as storytellers, right? So Danny coming to rescue them uh, was supposed to, was intended, I think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but it was intended to have this same pastiche of You know the last minute charge of of Stannis saving Jon Snow or Tywin Lannister saving uh, Tyrion at the Battle of Blackwater, but then they subvert that by having you know Viserion die or being uh, I guess undead uh, in the next scene. So there's there's a bit of, of storytelling subversion, which I think is a good feature of storytelling. But at the same time, some of the mechanics to get there, I just didn't enjoy like the quickness of things, how fast things were progressing. But when things weren't progressing as fast, those are the times that I really, really gravitated towards the story.
0: I remember watching season four in IMAX and we've all appreciated the, the scale and the cinematic quality of Game of Thrones since the first season. But for me, I feel like the scene that you're talking about specifically because of the way that we were kind of pulled out of the realism that is so awesome. And let me try to get this is a terrible (laughs) way to describe it. No, it's good. (laughs) Making us trust it over time, like those first handful of seasons, not everything being so explosive and directly in your face, not begging you to be a viewer because of what they're offering, but saying that you should be a viewer because you should be interested in what's actually happening here. I feel like there was a certain, I don't know, little aberration when all that's happened north of the wall. It kind of felt like we were watching a movie at that point, but not necessarily in a good way yeah you said you appreciated the extra time they spent with the characters when they were kind of sure. sitting and consternating on their situation, but I guess my impression is you didn't really think that all of that was necessary north of the wall
1: not not all of it and uh, but the thing is is that i'm I'm not writing the show. I'm not up against a deadline you know where I have to storyboard something two years out, have a script delivered a year before something airs, and be able to film that and do all the other things that go into you know this massive production that is Game of Thrones now. It's something that I enjoy when you have, you know, characters pushing the story forward. What I really loved about a Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones is when you have a character, you have a character-driven plot, right? Where you have characters making choices. Say Rob Stark marrying Talisa in the show or Jane Westerling in the books that precipitates the red wedding. When you have, you know. Back in prehistory, where you have Rhaegar Targaryen quote unquote stealing away Lyanna Stark, or as we can see in, in season seven, marrying Lyanna Stark, that precipitates Robert's Rebellion and the birth of Jon Snow. It's these character choices that push the plot forward. And when it feels artificial and that the plot is pushing the characters forward, when that kind of paradigm shifts in a significant way, I have. A harder time enjoying it because I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard about Game of Thrones, it was probably early 2011, maybe late 2010. It was sold as The Sopranos Meet Middle Earth, right? I don't know if you guys remember mm-hmm. that sort of marketing that they were doing, and I was intrigued because I enjoyed The Sopranos. Um, and I enjoyed a lot of HBO programming, The Wire, especially, it was shout something that I really, really liked. Yeah, shout out yeah, to The Wire, shout <laughs> out. but when it becomes less character-driven and more driven by seemingly the plot. When the plot. When the plot is driving the characters, it tends to have an impact on, on my enjoyment of, of, a, uh, of, of a media.
0: How do you two feel about Season 7? Problems with things like mechanics aside, I feel like we're, we have to acknowledge that we're a certain kind of fan of the series where it's obvious that we, sure. we love it. And we enjoy it immensely. We're podcasting about it, and everyone listening at home, uh, you're on the exact same page as us because you're listening. So all of us are on the right. same page. We <laughs> we love it, we enjoy it, and so you know we're talking about things like timing and the show. You know what I mean? We're not really talking about is Game of Thrones good or not?
1: Wasn't that one of the points that one of that uh, Alan Taylor, one of the directors, made, is that some that someone asked him about the the whole timing issue and how characters are. Have jetpacks and they're traveling across the continent. They're like, well, you're not going to stop watching because you know a character is in Dragonstone in one scene and beyond the wall in the next scene. And you know, frankly, he has a point. It might be a little bit cynical, but he has a point in that people aren't going to stop watching. We're not going to stop watching. We enjoy the the show. It's a good show. Sometimes, though, I wish it would get into kind of the great territory, which is what I really, really enjoyed mm-hmm. in the in the first two. The first two seasons were the seasons that I saw before I read the books. And that's what prompted me to read the books. So, major kudos to to David and, uh, and Dan and Dan and all the writers and the people involved in in the show, because that's what prompted me and you know millions of people. I have to assume at this point to actually pick up you know this set of books, which has come to be very um, a, a big part of my life. You know,
2: this may be a bit of a, a leading question, but. We're talking about timing and pacing, and I, I think that this could also kind of lead into another discussion that we've all had on some level about just the way that this season was written. And as we continue to trek even farther off the books and because we're dealing with a time crunch, kind of really simplifying – that's my own way of oh, yeah, saying it's, I it. but think
1: it's, it's accurate. Yeah, it's an accurate sim- way of
2: simplifying – the the plot line and, and a lot of these interactions and a lot of these storylines and that's something that I struggled with quite a bit this season and I was just curious about your guys's kind of take as a whole if things feel I don't know I don't know how to ask this question because I feel like this is totally a leading question but if it feels like because we're out of time if I feel like in some ways it's kind of taken some of this analysis out of out of it because we're there's only so many things that can happen in the next six episodes, or we only have X amount of time left before for XYZ to get resolved. I don't know if that is something that changed the way either of you watched this show this season, or if that's something that, unlike me, you're able to get past and kind of brush under the rug.
0: That's a good question.
1: Yeah. Oof. I, I, <laughs> you go. Yeah. No, I, I feel like that, that being in the position that we're in where we watch the show, we, you guys are rereading the books now, I'm, I'm assuming, as you're going through the, the chapters. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're putting it in a different plane or you're made a lead or anything like that, and that any person with a set of eyes or, or a pair of ears can, can listen to an audiobook or read the books or rewatch the show or, or anything like that. But I do feel that it's. Um, I wasn't able to get past some of the things, and it wasn't just the, the wall plot. It was things like the Winterfell plot, which I didn't. I didn't I didn't think it was good. <laughs> there are moments that I really liked and I and I cited one of them earlier, which was the you know, the Arya and Sansa and Ned's reunion statue. scene, Ned's statue scene, which was great. Um the 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 little sparring between Arya and Brienne, which is really cool. And I don't know if you guys saw, uh, was it today that they had the released the video of um, yes. Maisie Williams and um, Gwendolyn blocking and Gwendo- Christie. Yeah. Where they were doing the, the blocking and they were doing the practice and Arya did that little flip thing with the the knife, which is really, really cool. And you watch that and you're like, there's, there's a whole lot of gold here with what I'm watching, but some of the plot mechanics, I, I didn't really gravitate towards after some of those scenes like that Winterfell plot. With Littlefinger, where the whole thing hinged on a scene, which apparently was cut, and I hopefully hope we see it in the DVD release when it comes out, which is where Sansa supposedly went and spoke with Bran and tried to figure things out with uh, with Littlefinger. I had a lot of issues with the mechanics of that and really, really not gravitating towards that part of the plot. Because it again, it felt very plot-driven that we need to kill Littlefinger, we need to get rid of Littlefinger so we're going to kind of not it just didn't feel finished did it it didn't no it it felt unfinished it also felt that it was not to the level of writing that i really enjoyed i think the the whole idea of sansa and arya coming into significant conflict over someone that neither of them trust doesn't feel authentic to the characters that we you know have spent Six seasons before season seven started, and have spent you know several episodes before they came into significant conflict over Littlefinger, and that really didn't sit well with me, and it didn't sit well with a lot of of folks, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe more of the folks that you know read the books or are deeply invested in podcasting and in writing about the the show, but and maybe the general public was okay with everything and sometimes i feel like i'm maybe not in the in the in the zeitgeist on some of these things you know kind of doing this sort of thing podcasting writing and and reading about the show
2: and i think there's you know, pros and cons to both of those things and it's just how people enjoy the medium so shout out to people who want to just watch it and go on with their lives and then shout out to the rest of us who are (laughs) here forever and cannot just walk away (laughs) so touching on this point that we've that i've been thinking a lot about is the fact that a lot of these characters kind of became caricatures of themselves and it worked really well for some people and one in particular and a line that i just kind of keep going back to is davos and oh, yeah. you know, when yeah. Davos meets Gendry and he's like, Oh, well, I thought you'd still be rowing. And <laughs> how that was such a fan service line that I felt landed really well and that I really, really liked. Um, even though it was, you know, I, I felt like it was again a, a caricature kind of, of of who Davos is. I think it worked really well for some people, and then I I think it worked less well in, in probably Littlefinger's case and in how things played off in Winterfell. And so Kind of this simplifying worked in some ways. Simplifying didn't work in other ways. And Winterfell, yeah, I agree with you on kind of how everything went down over there.
1: It's not even simplifying. I think it's more like streamlining. I think is what they're they're going for, and that they're they're pushing hard towards the end game. And they've created the structure. and And I'm sure, and maybe I'm totally off base in this, but I'm sure that if David and Dan came to HBO and said, "Look, we had said seven episodes, but we..." really have enough material to make it 10 episodes like a normal season. I don't think HBO would have been like, ah, oh, no, you said seven.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they would have been the like, last oh, yes. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Can we have right, 17? Exactly. And,
1: and I think I, I remember reading that, you know, HBO had said we will keep running the show for four or five more seasons if, if that's what it takes. And, you know, David and Dan said, no, we're we're good at, you know, the eight season mark. That's that's all we really want to do. And, you know, it's, and it's their artistic prerogative to – to kind of limit that, but it does have impacts on, you know, the storytelling mechanics where you have characters like Davos, which is good. And you have caricatures like Arya, which didn't land mm-hmm. um, well, parts of it landed well, um, but mostly towards the end, it did not necessarily hit the character marks that you would expect from Aria. And maybe, maybe it's my expectations are too high. Maybe our, expecta- our expectations are too high. When it comes to um, the characters and, and who we think that they should be. But I don't think so. I don't, I think it's, it, it runs in contrast with what, with the established character, the characters that they've established already.
0: When we hosted our Long Nights Watch Party in Brooklyn for the final episode, we had a pretty huge room full of folks and we were sitting in the back. And I definitely saw every time it cut back to Winterfell, sort of a, an unease people were kind of talking to each other and whispering and just the the sense in the room was this again or really this is happening not really we're back here until it was toward the very end of the episode but more of just kind of questioning the method in which it was unfolding. Right.
2: And it came How together. Many... I mean th- it did. Th- that final scene was was impactful and powerful, but Definitely. the way that we got there, you know, I think we all struggled with it.
1: And it might be an also uh, an issue in that the the writers wrote Figured out the end state and then wrote backwards from that is, is yeah. what it kind of seemed That's like. What it at felt points like is that they're like okay, Littlefinger needs to die and Arya and Sansa need to reunite, so we need to kind of figure out some sort of conflict for them, so that we have this conflict that ends up dominating the storyline. Whereas I was watching and I was like, well, you know, they could have made it so that the two sisters were working in concert with each other the entire time to try and bring Littlefinger down, and you have kind of conflict because Littlefinger has control of the veil and you don't want to alienate the veil um or you know bronze uh bronze on royce or any of these other types of things and that littlefinger has also been paying off people which it seemed like he was doing he has people in his employ so you're not sure who to trust but the two sisters would have been trusting each other and perhaps trusting Bran as as well um but when you have kind of have to invent the conflict it does you know it, it create unease in, in your guys's uh, viewing party and i i totally felt the same thing. Whenever Winterfell was featured, whenever they had that establishing shot of Winterfell, I was like, oh God, here we go again. <laughs> no- another type of invented conflict that we're going to have to suffer through. And yeah, sure, you enjoy when, I mean, I thought that Aiden Gellin's performance as Littlefinger in that last scene was really good and was very consistent with the established character of, of Littlefinger. Um, and I really enjoyed the scene afterwards where they're both atop the uh, parapets of Winterfell mm-hmm. and they're talking. Mm-hmm. Both those scenes were fantastic. And those were like the two scenes I think that they really thought through. But the scenes leading up to that I don't think were as fleshed out as they could have been.
0: You're a Martinian scholar. So I feel like <laughs> it's a, <laughs> Great. I'm borrowing that word from Lady Gwen. <laughs> Can I put that on my resume? I think that you need yes, to. Yes,
2: and your business cards.
0: <laughs> I will. Maybe it's just kind of unfair for us to be analyzing season seven, like we are right now. Cause I feel like we're, we're just kind of pointing out weak points and that's fine. That's part of what this conversation should be about. But I guess my question is with all of this being said, and all of the, the things that I know that didn't sit well with you, whether it was in this season or the one previous, do you still <laughs> get like a large enjoyment out of watching the series or are you at this point just kind of watching it and being annoyed while you're waiting for winds of winter?
1: No, I, I really enjoy Game of Thrones. I, I feel like that pointing out like the the shortfalls of Game of Thrones is not like god you guys suck. Right. I don't want to watch you guys. It's like it's more like you can be so much better sort of thing. I know you can be better. I've seen you be better. And there were and to transition to some of the things I really loved, one of the the scenes I just absolutely adored was the scene where they stop at the house. I think was it episode 1 or 2? I think it was episode one yeah. where there were. Sandra Clegane and the brother without yes, banners. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Go to the house and they. And Sandra is confronted with what he did, how he basically damned this family of people to death because he stole their food, and now they're dead. And he has to confront that. Like that is that was a wonderful scene that really brings, you know, a narrative conclusion. Not a narrative conclusion, but it adds something to Sandra's arc where he's like, man, maybe, maybe I'm. Maybe I'm bad, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like maybe what I'm doing is 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 not good. And you have, you know, that scene afterwards where that great narrative closure where you have Sandra Clegane and Thor Samir burying, you know, the family afterwards was just a, a wonderful, wonderful scene. And it's wonderful because it flows well with what they've established with Sander in previous seasons with season 4 where they went to the house and you have that closure from that teeny tiny scene which probably people don't even remember if they're thinking about the big moments of game of thrones but those are the types of things that I'm like yeah these guys still got it they just need the time in order to to write these types of beautiful scenes that i that really flow from character moments and i think that's something that i you know will always enjoy in game of thrones and it's something that you know, makes me think that this—it's not something that I'm cringing, waiting for Wins of Winner to come out because who knows when that's coming out? And I have a good show that provides not only quality entertainment but a lot of things to think about. You know, in terms of your media, and I think that's mix for good media is to have something to think about, not just something to watch and then forget about ten seconds later. But I agree. Something to, you know, dwell upon.
0: I'm afraid that we might miss some of that mystery moving forward. Just off of this conversation and how some of you guys feel with the story rushing so forward to show us a conclusion rather than to, I guess, keep offering us options of how it might end. And I'm afraid that because of just the way the story goes, the fact that we do need to see the conclusion that some of those reveals, I guess, might feel like some of the stuff felt this season where people were kind of like, hit or miss, you know, like the the Davos lines worked or Daenerys's excellent speech where she gave up so much more, I guess, feelings on her own life than she has before landed so hard that could have easily been chalked up as something other. It could have not been so impactful. It could have just been, it could have been taken as Danny. I don't know, all depending on music and editing and what came before it and how it cuts away from it and whose faces it cuts to during it. It's just a lot of math involved and a lot of people involved with a small amount of time and it costs a whole lot of money to get all of these pieces together in the equation perfect enough for us to look at it and for us to buy it
1: it certainly is i mean the the amount of effort that goes into the the crafting of the show is you can't find anything else on television right now that reaches anywhere close to the level that that they do um you know, there's. You'll never find me complaining about something like the costuming or the music or the set design or the CGI. All of these things take time and money and effort and talent, and they have that in spades. And you know, I think the writing team has talent in spades too. They just have such a limited time to try and figure out these complex issues with characters, and that they they tend to have a. Um... Now, the question I have for you guys: Do you? And this is something that. I've seen batted around a bit, but it's it's an interesting question I think is as the show has progressed beyond the canon of published books, so you had five books, the show is beyond those books by a significant amount and has continued towards the end game. Do you guys think that some of the storytelling has suffered because they don't have the corpus of books there for to kind of base their scenes off of, you know, up to season five and even a little bit of season six, they they had, you know, five books where they could be like, well, you know, there's this scene where Daenerys flies away atop Drogon at Daznak's pit. We're going to kind of we're going to take that. We're going to base the scene off of that, but we're going to change a couple things. Do you think that there's because they don't have anything to source any source material right now that the sh- the writing and the character development specifically has suffered as a result of of not having you know, the winds of winter and a dream of spring to kind of write off of?
2: I would say yes. I think so. I think that if we're going to talk about the pacing and, and and quickness of the season, I think that that conversation would be completely different if we were comparing that to a text that we had. And so I do think that the complexity is, is taken away because there just isn't that weight behind it because there's no story to back it up. Um, I think that as I said earlier, <laughs> that I had a moment during this season where I kind of really felt that I really, really felt. And it's funny because it was this episode that I feel like everybody loved the loot train battle. And I really <laughs> loved it. But that's just when it happened to me <laughs> that I was feeling how far we had progressed kind of away from the, the text itself. And so I think it happens to everybody a little bit as as we're watching this. And so, I mean, I do think it – and suffered isn't the right word because, again, you know, we're talking about how everything that kind of comes together to make this what it is is an incredible feat. But I do also think that it's okay for us to be, as you were saying a little bit earlier, Jeff, expect something better or higher because we've seen them set the bar and so we know that they can do it. And so – I do feel like, and again, I don't want to keep harping on this Winterfell plotline because I felt like all season I was just hating on it, if not on this (laughs) podcast, then in my day-to-day life (laughs) Um, (laughs) and every waking moment, you know, but I I think that things like that suffered because we didn't have the weight behind it. And I guess that's kind of the only way I can think to describe it is that there's just, you know, it it kind of... takes away from a lot of the complexity and intricacies that we have earlier because it's just what we see in front of us and less of this grander backstory and and you know I know we'll get there and, and I have no problem with the fact that and I quite enjoy the fact that things are going to play out differently and you know what we've seen in season 7 doesn't mean it's necessarily going to play out 100% that way in Winds of Winter or beyond because I think that that makes what we get to do even more enjoyable, but I do think that something is lost
0: there. Well, also, I don't know, he hasn't done it in a while, but we've been able to revisit in podcast form through rewatch the throne some George R. R. Martin penned episodes, and they're just oh, yeah. amazing. Have
1: you guys like listened to the um the the audio track that when George cuz he has several, I think it's the pointy end, Blackwater and um I think he directed the Bear and the Maiden Fair and the Lion and the Rose in season four, but he he has audio commentaries at least for the Pony end. that's the one I mm. listened to all the way through. If you have the DVDs, I strongly recommend it because he actually he talks about the difficulty in in adapting his own story for for the screen um, because he's he's condensing his own material to make. An episode, what it what it is, because he's you know taking out some of the complexity and a m- number of these minor characters, which we think are minor, but for him, tend to have um, you know an impact because uh, you know one of the things he's talked about, and, and this will sound kind of crazy if if you've never read the books, but he said that one of the things that he's disagreed with about the show writers or the showrunners rather. Is when they um, excised Garland and Willis Tyrell, mm-hmm. the two Tyrell mm-hmm. sons uh, of Mace Tyrell, which is it you know is, should kind of even for book readers kind of strikes you as weird because these guys are very minor characters. One of the characters, Willis Tyrell, has not even appeared in *The Song of Ice and Fire* proper. He's mentioned, but he's never been in a single scene because he's been out in High Garden, while all the rest of the Terrells have been in in King's Landing. Um, but yeah, I, I recommend trying to go going back and listening to some of the audio commentary that George puts to these these episodes that he directed early in in Game of Thrones. It really brings out a lot of um, nuance and uh, some interesting discussion about his difficulty in adapting his own work. And I think it's 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 well worth you guys and and your listeners giving, Definitely. giving that a listen. No, that's I would very think cool. it'd be
2: even more difficult as the author yourself to. Condense your own work, even even though he does yeah. have a, have the background, I, I just do think that that would be so incredibly difficult. Of what do I of my own story hack from oh, from the, oh, the right. screen? But, I think that'd be tough.
0: But when he writes Blackwater, he gets to write a scene with Sandor and the fire and stuff, while while <laughs> yeah. while knowing secretly why it's important to put his little exchange with Braun there and to you know talk about the kind of man he is and the him leaving in a certain fashion obviously the showrunners have the same information but i feel like like what you're saying george or george <laughs> <laughs> whoops cat's out of the is bag that now, now. Put that evil on. everyone knows everyone knows now by the way when's winds of winter coming out i was curious <laughs> yeah okay <laughs>
1: Uh, when I forgot what I was saying either way, it's, it it, it kind of brings up an interesting point is, is that what the showrunners actually know about things that aren't published yet. And and we know that in 2013, that David and Dan went and visited with George R. R. Martin in Santa Fe and they talked with him and they asked him about how the, how the story ends. And he said, accordingly, he said, according to, I think it was, um, Dan Weiss. Dan Weiss said that George had very definite ideas for some things about how he was going to progress and he had the fates of all his major characters figured out. But for other things, he was a lot less certain or he hadn't quite figured it out yet Um, without going into any detail about what those types of storylines were that George was kind of struggling with or or wasn't entirely sure how he was going to progress. But it does kind of bring up the point is – an interesting question is how much of this season do you think was based off of conversations that David and Dan had with George four years ago, and whether what we saw on screen is a very redacted, very not very but simplified in in a sense version of what we'll end up finding in the pages of *The Winds of Winter* or Dream of Spring* whenever you know those books come out. It's well,
2: you look at. Little finger, sorry, Zach. I cut you off like a thousand times, but.
0: <laughs>
1: All good.
2: Um, you cut just, me
1: off anytime you easy, want. I'm not, I'm, I'm not asking easy questions. I apologize.
2: No, I think they're good questions. I, I think that, you know, we look at major plot points of things that I think will happen or can happen or will, I don't know. Littlefinger, the wall coming down in, in some way, shape, or form, Cersei and Jamie, and they're split ish here, and, and Danny and John coming together. I think that all of those things are plot points that the books are progressing towards in some way, shape, or form. And so sure. I would be 0% surprised if all of those things were what David and Dan had on a sheet of paper without much guidance of how to get there. And that's why we kind of feel that maybe. Some of these scenes between John and Danny weren't what they could have been, or you know that we weren't all completely on board with what was going on there until maybe the very end, or that that didn't happen in the way we wanted it to happen, or this struggle between Arya and Sansa kind of felt contrived because maybe it was because they needed to get to this end point, but they didn't quite know how to get there. And Zach, I don't know if if you feel the same way, but I think that. There's these major themes that are very obviously, in my mind, going to play out. But I, you know, I don't think the wall is going to necessarily come down in the same way in the books.
0: I don't know. <laughs> That's why you're here, Jeff. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I'm operating
1: with as much information as you guys
0: are. I always forget that. <laughs> I think that there's a good chance things like Viserion taking down the wall. And I, I said this on, um, I was on the uh, Season 7 wrap-up episode with History of Westeros the other day. Jeff, oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw yeah. that, but they did- It's four the-
2: hours long. I have it
1: queued up in my, uh, my podcast app, but I have not listened to it yet. It was
0: That's their good. longest episode ever. And when we were done with it, I was like, did we go pretty long? He was like, yeah, uh, Aziz. And it was like, yeah, it was the <laughs> longest one I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, plenty of thoughts there. But also, um, how is it going to happen in the books? I think what I said yes. on the episode was it seems like a very interesting take when we have all of this very traditional, sort of high fan- fantasy referencing to the wall and the power that it holds and what it represents figuratively and literally to the realm, but also the bad guys on the other side. And you've got people like Euron Greyjoy running around with a dragon horn. He could potentially, he's a pretty good target for being the person that would be most interested in causing a lot of chaos. And there's horns involved with him, So there's a lot of theories there and that might be something that's cool. Probably not. I don't really know, but to me, the idea of using dragons which are so involved with obsidian because obsidian comes from them, and obsidian being the tool that was used to, I guess, ignite the spark in the heart of the man. If we're to follow the lore on the TV show, sure. yeah, that became which seems like something that George would.
1: It felt like very George, if that mm-hmm. makes sense, right? I, I hope so.
0: And so that that magic sealed in that thing, controlled by those people, pushed into that guy, made the White Walkers. The wall was built. By brand the builder at all and contained (laughs) some kind of magic that's able to block out the magic of those people. It all just from a story perspective. And I think we've had these kinds of conversations with you on past episodes, so I won't get too far into it, but with what we know about Valyria and about how these weapons were made and about how these dragons were used and just in general, the the magic of the earth and about how the earth sort of spat back at them and, and fought back and about how they're back now. And now the White Walker chieftain just so happens to have a dragon. It just, it all kind of feels like the surprise that maybe would have happened that we don't know yet because we're expecting something so much more traditional. That being said, it also kind of feels like something you could see on a TV show.
1: Well, I I definitely agree that the show has moved in a more high fantasy direction and that maybe that shift has been part of what some of us are reacting against. But I also don't think that the books are going to be different in that. I think you're going to see a, a continuous shift away from this, you know, War of the Five Kings, Red Wedding, um, you know, John and Danny dealing with sensitive political matters at the Wall and in, and in Marine, uh, towards you know a, a confrontation between supernatural beings and the others or the White Walkers and the Chopra Lance. and um, and and dragons being involved and magic being involved and I think that's that's a good you know story telling method is that you transition the story slowly so that you're you're peeling back layers and you're revealing more and more magic and you're revealing more and more of these kind of high fantasy elements that are coming to the story which is a cool way of telling the story but it also might feel a little bit different than what we've grown up quote unquote experiencing and and. And watching and reading, and maybe there's there's an element of it that we're kind of like, well, I did, this just doesn't feel like mm-hmm. season one. And you're like, well, of course it's not going to feel like season one. We don't have anything to yeah.
0: compare it to. Our training right. wheels are off. We're here in the dark by ourselves, and it's scary seeing characters that are the characters handled so far into this end game without any kind of rubric to compare it to. For example, the final shot of, of Tyrion in season 7, we don't know exactly what's going on there, but we know something's right. going on there. And I know how much you love Tyrion, <laughs> so the thought of Tyrion being embroiled in that kind of conflict, whichever direction it's in, could be in a direction that could be very troublesome. We don't really know. You know, that's that's a scary thing because until season 8, we're left to draw our own conclusions without George's help, and it's kind of confusing.
1: It is. And You know, that conflict to kind of back end off that, that conflict, that coming conflict between John and Danny is I think is going to be a a very large part of what we're going to see in season eight. And I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if it's something that we see in, in the books too, where you have two characters that enter into a romantic relationship, and then suddenly they realize that the, you know they're related. As it that, happens, as it happens, they're related, and that John, after all, has perhaps the stronger claims of the Iron Throne. And what is that going to mean for Daenerys, who sacrificed so much of everything—her, her brother, you know, her, her friends, the people that she's close with—you know—sacrificed physically, gone through starvation, gone through, you know, watching people that she loves, you know, die or or are hurt. And then Jon Snow comes along, and you and you find out, um, and it seems very strongly foreshadowed from Bran's conversation with Samwell that we need to tell John. Well, no, you don't need to tell John because what you're going to end up doing is setting that conflict into into motion. If John is now like, well, I'm I'm the king of Westeros. Da- Danny doesn't really have a claim next to mine, which is something that you would think. Well, these people would put put that sort of stuff aside when you have you know, the apocalypse upon them. But but would they? Would we? And that's the kind of question that I think you're going to have coming in the next season where you have the conflict in place. And the question is, how is that all going to unravel? And you have Tyrion in the midst too. And Tyrion, is he going to be the one solving the conflict or is he going to be the person that's going to be egging one party or another party on? It's it's uh, They definitely have set the the parameters for a very interesting season, Um You know, you almost – well, you definitely wish that it was more than six episodes for season eight.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Our friend Joanna Robinson wrote on Vanity Fair uh, wrapping up season seven, and one of her notes on the potential conflict between John and Danny and Tyrion um, referenced the original treatment for Song of Ice and Fire. If you remember, there being a conflict near the end, kind of a love triangle between Arya, John, and Tyrion, and she, Mm -hmm. she noted that there could be a possibility. I was really excited about it not necessarily happy excited just like oh this there could be something to this <laughs> um maybe a, a, a reusing or him shifting some of those ideas because he has from that original treatment shifted some of those ideas around it could potentially be a shift for there to be some kind of a conflict between Tyrion, john and danny and uh also in her article we'll link it up in the show notes there's some um uh, Quotes that she included from Peter Dinklage talking about Tyrion, and it sounds very much so like the way he his interpretation of it is that he's feels for Danny in a certain way. I don't know; it's just confusing. What do you think?
1: Oh, didn't didn't uh, Peter Dinklage say something like that? He has uh, a fondness for a romantic fondness for for Danny. I think he said that before the season even aired. Right? It was something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's definitely going to play a part too. If you have the person that you you're falling in love with. Falling for someone else, right that that's instant conflict right there you have that kind of same triangle which George talked about and in, in that letter that he wrote now I guess it's twenty almost twenty five years ago about how he saw the story unfolding um seeing that some sort of love triangle between Danny and John and Tyrion seems like it's a great way to explore conflict that feels organic, you know that doesn't feel necessarily as artificial as the Winterfell storyline. And I'm, I'm probably stoking Hannah's <laughs> anger right now. As I, She's <laughs> like, yeah, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hometown. <laughs> but that, but that feels like a very organic conflict, right? Where you have someone that cares for someone in, in a romantic way and they're, they're, they're left out of the equation because they, they don't measure mm-hmm. up for whatever reason. And um, I, I think it'll be something that's going to be very, very large come season eight and, perhaps at the end of the song of ice and fire too. When
2: you also put all the other types of relationships and everything else that's going on around them, you put that in the center of things like Jamie heading North and the whites and white walkers coming South and Bran seeing crazy things and, um, you know, everything that's happening with all of the magic and the red God. And, you know, there's, there's everything is finally converging and we've been talking about this since day one but everything really is genuinely converging in the same spot and to i think be able to have those like human conflicts that we've been talking so much in this episode taking place and feeling real in the midst of magic and high fantasy villains i guess you could say <laughs> um is i think will come together for a really great season and so I'm I'm I feel hopeful about how they're setting things up for season eight because I feel I feel hopeful. I feel like they're they're doing a good job in in, in putting these characters that we care about in a good position to kind of sprint towards the finish line.
0: So Jeff, what do you think the truth of John's parentage will mean to Danny and John?
1: For John, um here's here's what I think. I think that some people have this idea that John's reveal as a Targaryen as the heir to the throne, as Rhaegar's son, will be a, tr- a moment of triumph in the story, in that it'll be John assuming some sort of royal identity and everything making sense to John. I don't think that's the way that that storyline is going to play out. I think it's going to be, it's going to crush John, because John has grown up his entire life as a bastard son of Ned Stark. And no, Ned never treated him badly. And Ned did care for him and love John as much as he could love someone that was his nephew. But he wasn't his son either. And John has deliberately modeled himself off of who he thinks his father is, off of Ned. And that comes in the way he speaks, in the types of values that he upholds. And even it comes down to things like his wardrobing, Mm-hmm. is very reminiscent of Ned Stark. And when you introduce this dynamic that he is not Ned Stark's son, it's going to crush him. It's going to be a moment, if not a several episode arc of crisis for him over his identity. And that's something that I think is going to be really, um, I think it'll impact him in, in, in a negative way in, in the end. And I think, you know, I talked a little bit about what I think is going to happen with Dan, uh, Danny, and John. And, you know, I, I watched the after the the episode thing from episode seven, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Benioff was talking, Dan, uh, David Benioff was talking about how that's going to be some, I don't know, I can't remember the exact way he said it, but it was that's all seeding future conflict between the two, that it's not going to be this happy moment. When Bran or Sam or whoever it is tells Jon about the truth of his parentage, and that it's going to be hard on at the at to say the very least on his relationship with with Daenerys, and I think Danny is going to be suspicious of yet another quote unquote usurper Mm -hmm. trying to take what's hers away from her. You know, she's said multiple times she'll take what is hers by fire and blood, and she'll take what is hers by right, and. These types of things. Well, what if it's not actually hers by quote unquote right? What if the the framework that she's been operating under is now threatened by someone else that has a better claim? That's a Targaryen. That's you know the son of a beloved you know prince Targaryen prince and Rhaegar Targaryen. That's going to be very conflict oriented. Do you guys uh, do you guys agree or think it's going to be different?
2: I'm curious what you guys think about. I think a lot of people kind of skirt around this by saying. Well, John doesn't want the throne anyway, so he's going to he's not going to be driven to to take it from Danny, I guess you could say. But I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, and I don't know what you guys think about that.
0: I don't know if John will be at the forefront of the clatter when it comes to his truth, and I don't know if Danny will necessarily be opposing him directly, or if she does, I think it's possible that she may forget about John and oppose him specifically because of the conflict and we may lose a lot of the humanity there between the two of them.
1: The other thing too is is that you know, you have the the White Walkers that have just breached the wall and you have John who's faced the White Walkers on at least two occasions, you know, at hard home and then at um and then the last episode. I could see a, a situation where John is saying to Danny, look, this this isn't the way that we're going to win the war. I, you know, he keeps saying it over and over again this season. You know, I've seen them, I've fought them, I have the experience to to be the leader, to lead humanity so that we don't all die in during this winter. And I think that's going to be a focal point of conflict in that maybe John won't be like, well, I'm the king because I'm, you know, I'm the king by rights. But John might be saying things like, you know, I know how to fight, you know, the White Walkers and the dead. I know these, these things and I have the experience and now I have the authority that my actual identity is granting me. And I think that's going to be what, what comes into uh, the relationship between Danny Danny, and John. Um, and one of the things I, I, I was a little bit complaining about was that I thought that the whole will or won't John bend the knee to Danny was going to end up being concluded with um, – with Danny and John coming into a marriage alliance, right? Because that's the, one of the ways that you might resolve um, a succession crisis is that you have a marriage alliance which brings two houses together. Uh, I was a little bit peeved that they didn't have that in the this, in this season, but now I understand why that was withheld, why they ended up coming to the conclusion that they did. Because it sets the conflict into motion later on where John and Danny are not co equals, where John is now, you know, has bent the knee to Danny. And she, he might not have had to have been the Benthany if he has the better claim after all.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think that Danny, whether or not she can have a child, if she does or doesn't, if it's with John or not, do you think that that can play into this at all? And do you guys think that she can get pregnant, or that that even matters?
1: I think it's possible. I don't trust I Mary at me. all. No, uh, I think you. I think Daenerys took the the word of a, a very bitter and angry woman and, and has used that as as a guiding as as some sort of prophecy where it it reads as a sarcastic retort and a really kind of vengeful, spiteful thing that Mary Mazdor said after she killed Danny's Danny's child and uh, and I and I think also too this that wasn't in the show, that was only in the books. But they kinda of played it off like that it was something in the show as well.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. Talking about the the way that Rego
1: died? No. So the way that Rego died was was in the show, but the um where Miriam Mazdor says uh when the sun rises oh, in the yeah. east and sets in the west, when the rivers run dry and all these when the all these different types of, of things that Danny interprets as prophecy in the books, but I don't think it was featured in the show. But it ended up being played in this season that it was something that Miriam Mazdor had said, but I don't Think it was actually said, at least in the show.
0: I can't remember specifically. My greatest memory of Mary is her going, "There is a spell." It's like, yeah, I bet there is. <laughs> God, all of that's so difficult to watch. I want to ask you. Um, man, I wish we had like four hours Five to talk about hours. this stuff. I know I'm Me like too. thinking, like, oh, Jeff, do you think, or, or I guess, what are your thoughts? And if you could give people a little bit of context that are listening so they know what I'm asking you about mm-hmm. on Danny becoming Nissa, Nissa.
1: So Nissa, Nissa was a part of the Azor Ahai prophecy where in in legend, the uh, Azor Ahai figure was attempting to forge Lightbringer, the sword that would fight evil and do all these types of wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Um, each time he tried to forge a sword, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the story because there's been a few probably been over a year now since I've read it, but it was in the Clash of Kings. They were – he kept forging the sword and it kept breaking and kept not working. So he tried over and over and over again, with different swords still didn't work. Tried different prophecies and spe- or different spells rather, and it didn't work. And then finally, the way that he was able to forge the sword was uh, he his wife told him to stab her through the heart, and that would forge Lightbringer and, and become the this, this sword of heroes. Um as it plays out, I've I've really kind of gravitated towards this idea that it's possible that the end game for John and Danny might be something similar, where Danny sacrifices herself to forge Lightbringer. Whether that's a metaphor or whether that's an actual sword, I'm I I don't really have a a, a clear sense of. But I think it's it that prophecy is intended, and that story is intended to foreshadow events from the from the end game. I've got a. a A good friend, Ileana, Glass Table Girl on on Reddit and other places, who's talked to, who's made the point that a lot of these types of legends and stories are not just there for world building, they're there to help set the foundation for events that are coming in the future of the books. And I think that the Nissa Nissa story is very much intended to set the foundation for the potential for John sacrificing Danny to end the long night or maybe even John killing Danny you don't want to say it but perhaps over a a succession struggle or or John thinks that she's going to make a a horrible terrible decision that'll kill lots of people and he ends up killing Danny as as a result and I don't think it's I I don't think that John and Danny's story in the end ends in anything other than than a tragedy Danny specific Danny in particular I definitely
2: agree that we can't I definitely think we can't get to the end of season eight with both of them in a big happy family or even just at all.
1: Well, you know, the, the, one of the things to, to kind of go back way back is is that um, David and Dan talked about that there were three, quote unquote, holy shit moments that George told them about. One of them was that Stannis burns Shireen. The second one was that Hodor comes from Hold, Hold the Door and this whole story about Bran, uh, you know, impacting Hodor in some way and, and changing him. But the third moment hasn't happened yet, and I'm I'm thinking that given the context of those two other moments, that it could be something like John kills Danny, or Danny dies, or Danny sacrifices herself to to save humanity, or or something like that. Uh, that feels very much like a like a moment that would really impact David and Dan, who you know have read the books. I think they've said like ten or eleven times that they would be like yeah that's that's the moment where i'm like that's crazy
2: so we're going to get john killing danny and jb killing Cersei in the same 2K19. season <laughs> let's
1: hope <laughs> i'm going to
0: switch gears just a little bit i want to ask you if you think the hound has always been able to see visions and exactly what's going on with his connection with the red god and who's feeding him visions to the fire is it Oh. It could be.
2: <laughs> That's the right Sean, answer. George, we need to know. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Zach, I feel like you have lots of thoughts about this. The hound is your favorite character.
1: Yeah. So do you think that Bran is feeding the hound visions? Do you think that he's, uh, he's always seen visions?
0: I feel so different than a couple of years ago on this podcast. And if you've been listening with us this whole time, you guys might feel different too. I feel like there used to be so much mystery and wonder But now I'm seeing season seven and Sandor Clegane is looking into the fire and seeing visions that take him and friends to a place where the Night King steals and kills a dragon. I'm just so confused about how all this works together and where light and dark meet in the middle and who's behind it. Because that seems to be what's going on here.
2: Do you think the hound is the prince that was promised?
0: I think that George is the great other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that that's the end of the story, <laughs> okay because <laughs> he kind of is. I mean, he wrote the books after all, true. Uh, he was cleansed by fire early as a child when he had his face shoved into it for some reason. There's theories that maybe he saw Gregor dying by his hand in the fire, and he told him about it, and his brother was like, "Well, that's not going to happen here. Do this instead. That was possibly what Sandor was quoting when he faced him down in episode seven when he said, "You know what's coming." Hmm. So, Cleganebowl, do you think
1: it's going to happen? I mean, it, in the show, it looks like it's definitely happening. Uh, I mean, you, you have the whole conflict set into motion early on. I mean, you have Littlefinger telling uh, Sansa the story of, of Sander and Gregor in, back in – clear back in season one, episode three or four um, at the at the tourney. And you have in season seven where you have the uh, – you know, Sander saying, you know, you know who's coming for you. That seems very clearly intended to foreshadow that Sander and Gregor will come into some sort of fight or battle or conflict. I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but I think it's it's happening in the show, in the books. I I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. It'll happen in the way that some people have proposed. But this
2: is a very non-hype way to talk about this.
1: I'm sorry. We are not I, getting
2: I, hype. Well, so the, the
1: and, and this is <laughs> this this, this comes back to being to being a book reader. In, in the books, you have um the gravedigger theory, which has not really much of a theory anymore. It's it's almost confirmed to use you know the clickway Cle- bowl terminology. It's hundred percent confirmed <laughs> <laughs> that Sandra Clegane is <laughs> Is uh, is is the gravedigger that Brienne and Podrick see while they're progressing through the through the Riverlands, where they they see this this huge guy that he's he's a gravedigger and Brienne is questioning the elder brother who's uh, uh basically a monk from the faith of the Seven, and the, the elder brother keeps saying you know the hound is dead, you know he keeps saying that over and over again, and what that is intended to symbolize, what a lot of people think it is intended to symbolize, is that the hound persona of this raging you know dog that has been scarred and traumatized by these life events that personality has been put to rest and now Santa Clygain is left so i never got on the quote unquote hype train because it felt in conflict with the character that george seems to be establishing for the future where you have a character that's not the hound anymore that's not joffrey's dog that's not you know killing you know the butcher's boy, Micah, mm-hmm. who's not, you know, going into these these, these frenzies in, in battle. It's it's a different character. Um, one who's been not raised from the dead, literally, but metaphorically raised from the ashes of the hound to become Sander again. And I think that's a wonderful, beautiful story of of someone finding peace in the midst of of all the trauma and horror that he's experienced and having them then thrown into a battle with you know, Robert Strong in the books or, you know, the mountain again, his, his brother, Sir Gregor at Cersei's trial by battle in the Winds of Winter has always felt in significant conflict with how George seems to be progressing Sander's story to the next stage.
2: I think that's fair. I think that, like, I would agree with that argument that it kind of pedals back his redemption arc and we're, we're very much on that trajectory.
0: So it could come way later. In the books.
2: Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I don't know if 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 him and his newfound ability or his new newly discovered ability, I don't know if that's something maybe he's always been able to do, but he just has avoided flame and fire so much that he's never really had the opportunity until he's been (laughs) forced, I guess, to be put in that situation. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know if how that would then play into his redemption arc that we can call and kind of the trajectory that he's on, but yes for a show perspective that's exactly where we're heading and if we only get it in the show and not in the books I will be 100% satisfied <laughs> that's all I asked for
0: out east Melisandre is up to no good maybe we like Melisandre now do we I mean she brought John back to life she also burned Shireen I man. know <laughs> but you love Jamie look at what he's done <laughs> You got anything to I... back? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Right? So do you think that she's looking at, I guess, a potential future to mirror the hounds almost where she has been around for so long and she's done so many things and maybe now toward the end of the story where all the things are kind of converging, she sees the answer and she sees the path that's ahead of her that maybe wasn't as clear before.
1: I I guess I, I feel like that, Melisandre, in the early episodes of season six, was going through a crisis of faith where the god that she thought was real didn't provide the results that she believed that god was going to provide, which was to provide Stannis victory because she is so consumed with Stannis as Azor High reborn, uh, which wasn't the case. Um, and now I'm not sure in what form she comes back. I've seen some theorizing that. She'll end up in Valantis. Um, she says she's going to Valantis, but she'll end up in Valantis, and she'll bring the followers of Relor over to Westeros to to help fight the White Walkers. I can see that being a possibility. I am curious about her relationship with Relor, and I've been curious about it since season since, since since season five, really. And that I'm not sure what she actually believes anymore since her. Faith was so shook by one thing that she believed so fervently not coming true. I, mean, I have a hard time. I, I, Melisandre is kind of a big question mark in terms of what her arc is going to be in season eight besides dying, which she mm-hmm. said she's going to come back to Westeros to die. So we know the end point, or we can be relatively assured of the, the end point, but the the plot Lead up to that endpoint is, is is a big question mark for me.
2: Well, and curious, I guess, along those same lines, because we know that that's the end point for Varys as well. What you guys think about Varys's role and how he may be tied into Melisandre or or not, and kind of where he fits into season eight as a whole? What you guys think about Varys?
0: Personally, I'm I'm just kind of out in the water, stranded alone, <laughs> with without a Varys to swim and save me because Littlefinger's gone and you know, his foil's not there anymore. I'm just, I don't know what it's going to be like when he
1: hears the news. So I, I think Vares in season eight, I think he's going to have a really interesting arc because in the books, it seems, and you guys aren't too far into a dance with dragons yet, but it seems that Vares is connected in some way to the plot of young Griff Mm -hmm. and John Connington Mm -hmm. and these types of characters. Um, I, I'm not saying this is an original thought by me. I've, I think I've read this or, or heard this from other people. So, and I apologize for not crediting who it was. But someone had put together the idea that Varys is looking kind of askance at Daenerys, right? He's saying, you know, you need, telling Tyrion you need to control her or figure out a way so that she doesn't turn into Aris Targaryen, right? So he's being, he definitely feels a sense of discomfort in supporting Daenerys. But what happens? When Varys finds out that there's another claimant to the throne that has a better claim that doesn't seem mad that doesn't burn prisoners of war to death, and that person being Jon Snow, is Varys going to have this moment similar to the books where he's supporting another Targaryen claimant against Daenerys Targaryen? It seems like that's the method that we're going. That's the plot that we're being driven towards. And it would also probably lead to his death too, right? Via Dragonfire if Danny finds out that he's betrayed her, and that's something that she says in episode two, where she says, "If you betray me, I will, you will, you will die." Sort of motif, and that's that's something that I think is going to happen, where Varys is going to betray Danny, and I think John Snow is a great person that, or not a great person, but I think he's a, he's a great <laughs> candidate for for a. <laughs> virus betrayed danny for
0: he's like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give my official stamp of approval on john yet i haven't seen all the seasons
1: (laughs) (laughs) still on the fence (laughs) all right
0: what do you think own of season seven if you had to bring it down to one moment definitively the big bangs happen let's write backwards from littlefinger's death to the to the to Arya small, killing everyone <laughs> to the yeah the tiny thing that you love or the big thing for season the 7 first.
1: that's a hard question because there's there's so many great moments and I feel like I've just harped on all the, the stuff I didn't like this this whole episode <laughs> so I think my own for this season would go to Jamie for finally 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 breaking free of Cersei of finally leaving Cersei and of not joining the good side, but in in having this moment where he's like, "This isn't the person that that I that I loved for so many years. This is someone who's gone off the deep end, who is not facing facts and realizing the severity of what all the living people in the world face right now." Um, so, my own goes to Jamie for for walking away from Cersei in that one scene in season in episode seven, and then riding out of King's Landing. And I won't talk anymore about all the snow falling and how wonderful it was, but it was wonderful. So that's my own for the season.
2: I like it. That's in my top. I
0: like that. Honorary own of the season goes to the snow falling in episode seven. (laughs) (laughs)
2: To
0: the weather? (laughs) Yeah, to the weather. Winter is here.
2: I have a half of an own and also my full own, but I want to give an honorary own to myself and the entire community for being in love with Euron Greyjoy for one episode. Because <laughs> that was a good time. <laughs> um, but I'm going to give my real own to when Hot Pie tells Aria that the Boltons are dead and that Jon is in Winterfell and that she starts to and she starts to head north and the look on her face when she has this realization that she can go home was my favorite moment I think of, of this whole this whole season, regardless of what happens next. I just thought that it was so beautiful to see her realize that she could finally go home if she wants to.
0: Hmm. Um, I, <coughs> I, I don't want to give my own of the season to this person, uh, but I'm going to have to, I think. So just a, a few small, I guess, uh cool stuff to mention. The fellas north of the wall, all of their interactions. Sandor throwing the rock, even even some of the cheesier stuff, you know, all of it. Also, the scene when he was looking into the fire, all the stuff with the Brotherhood without Banners this season was just so awesome. I really, really, really loved it. It was just like the grit and the soul of Game of Thrones for me. And while I love all of the the big character stuff and seeing scenes with John and Danny talk are are so cool, for some reason, I just I truly get the most enjoyment out of scenes like john and davos showing the arm and uh you know (laughs) and or staring at his brother (laughs) just small stuff like that but i think that they own the season for me has got to go to cersei because at the end of season six i just thought that it was going to be a uh what's the word when people like uh really good basketball players come and they like hold a clinic I mean, yeah that's what it is i just thought that episode one of season seven was going to be a clinic of rolling over Cersei and then divvying up and figuring out what was going to happen there. But she is in a huge position of power at the very end of season seven. We're all not quite sure how she pulled it off.
2: Yep. That's a good one. Mm. And now- without
0: further ado. Yeah, let's go.
2: (laughs) And now it's time to finally give everybody's or to read through everybody's final owns of the season. And we got a ton of them. I tried to put as many as we could into this episode. And so I guess. I don't know how, how right. to introduce this. Let's read it. <laughs> Let's go.
1: With it. Let's do it. All right. So our first own comes from Andrew Ifold. And it says, my season own goes to Elena Terrell. Even at the end, when her house is finished, she still has something to say. Hashtag tell Cersei. Hashtag Queen of Thorns. Hashtag drop 2 k 17
2: James Aldama, owned to the Hound's first smile in seven seasons after he hears that Arya has made it safely to Winterfell. That was a great
0: little moment, Uh, wasn't it? It
2: was really sweet.
0: Zach Carr, owned to Cersei for the entire season. Her transformation from protective mother lion to secluded black widow is horrible and wonderful to watch. Seeing her flip between Tywin's pragmatism and her mad queen delusions is an awesome character study. Lena Headey is phenomenal as Cersei. She was to stand out this season. Just with facial expressions, you can see all the agony and pain Cersei has experienced in the last seven seasons. Her interactions with Jaime and the timing of his departure all align with Cersei's descent, side-owned Arya's line. My sister asked you a question. For making me yell, yes, Ooh, louder yeah. than I did when the
1: Hound approached the mountain.
0: Hashtag, are you done, Baelish? Hashtag, 2K18. Hashtag, Maggie the who? Hashtag, give that girl an Emmy.
1: Erica Lesto says, my own for this season goes to all the badass women who rule this world. Exclamation point. Arya for opening the season with a slaughter. Danny for raging with her dragons. Sansa for killing Baelish. Brienne for just being badass Brienne. <laughs> and Cersei because she is batshit ignorant crazy. Hashtag, who ruled the world? <laughs> hashtag women
2: karma wilson clark owned to jamie and all of his brilliant faces this season when the war is over he needs to start a murmur school for face (laughs) acting at casterly rock Hashtag for your consideration. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag Nikolai Kosterwaldu shock face.
0: Sam Rosenberg, my overall season seven own has to go to Danny, forgive me, the queen, for her judicious usage of dragon fire with a special nod to the practical and special effects crews for pulling off every scene perfectly and giving us dragons with all their spectacular glory. Hashtag roastatarly. Hashtag rip vizarian. <laughs> hashtag Daenerys the conqueror 2K17. Abby
1: Elisa says own to the entire special effects team for bringing whites, dragons, and a white walker dragon to life. The battles are some of the best ever in any medium, and Drogon looks so real that for a minute I was jealous that Kit Harrington got to pet him. <laughs> Hashtag that eye, though. Hashtag you want pick, we will give it to you epic. Hashtag all the Emmys. <laughs> Hashtag <laughs> beauty. <laughs> all the, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Hashtag all the Emmys, of course. Hashtag beauty on the screen. Hashtag breathtaking effects. Hashtag game. Hashtag pronunciation
2: <laughs> hashtag help um uh, <laughs> dave clark season owned Ghost to Tyrion, who ironically embodies both halves of the song ed sheeran and the Lannisters, my new ska band name are singing hands of gold are always cold but a woman's hands are warm he was a hand of gold under joffrey but now he's a woman's hand under daenerys
0: Oof! wow natalie oh. johnson own to Drogon for making me literally cheer with joy as he burns people to a crisp. Hashtag burn, baby burn. Hashtag Drogon Inferno. Hashtag has this show made me a bad person? Yes. Maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley Laurel Rifflin, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, own to the Hound for seeing the wall and the flames and put together the best Avengers-like team of heroes the show has ever seen.
2: Nerdflix and chill. Michelle Clapton should get her own... Own, should get an own for her incredible costuming work this season.
1: Agreed. Amen. Michelle
0: Collier, I'm owning Tormund and the Hound discussing Bran of Tarth. Small world, isn't it?
1: Simon Huds says, own to the Night King for majoring in dragon taming. Where do I sign up for dragon riding, javelin, and posture <laughs> classes? Classes? hashtag north of the wall university hashtag fantastic roi hashtag liberal arts are not dead
2: shout out to that posture shout
1: out posture uh, 2K17.
2: jim Kozinski to jamie for finally seeing the light and heading north for the great war to come
0: power howard on twitter own to aria who's going to make use of the face id on the new
1: westerosi iphone x <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair rex 953 on twitter says own to theon and his beautiful arc and alfie allen for his amazing performance this season
2: erica targaryen own to jamie for going from pushing a child off a tower for love to finally ditching that psycho chick hashtag seven seasons too late hashtag love me some jamie
0: emily donna on twitter owns to michelle clapton for making everyone look fly as hell and also willing a bit uh and also winning a bazillion emmys hashtag you go girl
1: one of the white fawn says season owned to the explosion of badassery that was the aria versus Brienne sparring scene i may or, i may or may not still squee every time hashtag fave scene 2k17 and her second own goes to me for finally remembering the goddamn 2K17 of <laughs> my hashtag. Hashtag nailed it, 2K17. Uh, Moakley nice. owned
2: to the Starks. It took seven seasons, but they figured out how to communicate, sort of, but also not really actually.
0: Cillian <laughs> Byron owned of season seven has to go to DD for trolling all book readers with John's name. Hashtag double agon. Hashtag not my name. Hashtag dragon knight. Hashtag truth. Hashtag all caught up for one season. Oh, i cut it for on-season.
1: Uh, Megan V on Twitter says, Owned to Jamie for the regular WTF expressions. He threw Euron <laughs> and Cersei's way all season long. At it's Harvey Harve,
2: Owned to Arya for finally killing Littlefinger. Do you guys think that he comes back for vengeance as Lady... Nope. As Lord Stoneheart? <laughs> Pondering emoji. No.
1: I think... No. So. Maybe, you know? No. <laughs> like, white wall, like undead Littlefinger? You know, we really Your need sister. some
2: things to talk about in this middle season between season eight so let's get that one going let's do it yeah
0: rose eggleston my own goes to hbo for saving the best reunion for last hashtag Arya stark hashtag john snow hashtag 2k18 hashtag 2k19 hashtag i won't cry
1: and alexander from an email says my own goes to daenerys for owning cersei to arrive late with quote dragon force (laughs) one talking about it talk about an entrance and then the way she stepped down from Drogon, exclamation point, exclamation point. It was like Drogon had a built-in escalator. <laughs> Greetings from Belgium. Greetings. Three exclamation points.
2: Back to Twitter, we have Jeff Alexander who says, My season-owned goes to Drogon who, in every scene, comes in like a wrecking ball.
0: <laughs> Shout out Kim <Cameron> from <laughs> RSM, owned to the hound for his continued redemption. The mountain knows what's coming for him. He's always known. Hashtag the Game Bowl 2K19.
1: Yep, my czar. Or I Miss Molly Ivins says own to Arya for avenging the Red Wedding and Ned Stark by ending House Frey and Creepy Finger. Hashtag winner came for House Frey. Hashtag the North remembers.
2: Elizabeth Byrd owned Nymeria for finally showing up after six seasons only to walk away and break our hearts. Hashtag mm. worst reunion ever. Hashtag still in denial.
0: 17 on Twitter owned a Dragonstone slash Winterfell players for rehearsing the hell out of the here's a white presentation at the <laughs> Dragon Pit.
1: Hashtag who needs PowerPoint.
2: <laughs> I like that I like one the a way lot. you
1: thinking, Peg, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason and Stars on Twitter says, My own goes to Ghost because he deserves more than what he got this year. Hashtag Ragger Junior Two K Seventeen, hashtag Direwolf MVP. <laughs> Juan Pablo from
2: an email says, "My own goes to Kybern Candy Corner hashtag Triple Q for expanding their mer- merchandise, including the Dragon Cannon Killer, obviously with cues, mm-hmm. and much more weapons in the section West Killing Corner." Again, cues.
0: Hashtag shout out Eric 2K17.
2: Hashtag Eric has been busy. Hashtag carbon pregnancy cares.
0: Christine on Twitter, (laughs) own to the Stark siblings for giving us the resolution we've been praying for. Littlefingers demise. Hashtag
1: you're doing amazing, sweeties. And Melissa T7 on Twitter says, own to the hound for the most honest and compelling character arc and delivering some of the funniest lines. Hashtag Top Knot. Hashtag (laughs) fire worshippers. Hashtag. Get hype, of course I would say that. I (laughs)
2: forgot about the top knot. Also, yes, I'm glad you said get hype. (laughs) Uh, Palindrome, own to the show, these books, this universe for upping my fangirling to over 9,000 and making me feel every feel there is to feel. Hashtag GOT.
0: Darren Swords, own to the hound for having a true anti-hero arc while not sacrificing his foul mouth and sharp bite.
1: Him and Elena would have been fun. Jenny of Tarth on Twitter says, own to, I have to give my own of the season to Sam for literally just Asking Brand to have an R plus <laughs> L equals J flashback and solving the biggest a song of ice and fire mystery. True.
2: Rosemary sent in an email and said to Davos, who is supporting his third candidate for King slash Queen, it has gone from the grammar guy to dead man to dragon lady. Nice
0: two K seventeen. Stephen Hauser, owner of the season to Jon Snow for keeping it all in the family. Hashtag Uncle Top Aunt Bottom. Also
1: my oh fantasy my football gosh. team name. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> it's, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. Summertime McNulty on Twitter says own to the Knights King for making sure he has some chains with him. Just in case. Hashtag a Boy Scout is always prepared.
2: At Stephanie J C own to Queens. Olena Cersei verstani Sansa parentheses, fight me. I won't. Wrong. In a show wrong. with
1: <laughs>
2: We like never I feel like we've never even <laughs> gone there because we can't. Um <laughs> In a show with hashtag problematic medieval themes, these women are next level and timeless. Can someday me and Jeff have a Sansa fight?
0: I can't wait till that happens. <laughs> Carolyn Bailey, season owned to Sansa, hmm, Tormund, plus Sir Ed Sheeran for being the beautiful gingers of Westeros. Hashtag kiss by fire crew. Hashtag you can't sit with us.
1: Winter Hellion from Twitter writes, "Own to Hot Pie for inspiring Arya's truest moment. Why? Bolton's have it. You're lying. That frantic look she chooses gives me chills. There you go, Hannah. I made a bigger Thank point. God. big enough? <laughs> <laughs> I
2: hate you guys. She's like, okay. you're
0: laughing, but it's great. I can read the whole thing. It's actually
2: <laughs> really helpful. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. Tassos on email says The first meeting of John and Daenerys and my own goes to Amelia Clark, who proved the haters wrong with her performance and Danny's monologue to John. That gave me chills.
0: The King Renly Baratheon himself writes to the podcast and gives his own of the season to Beric for being an absolute machine and being ready to 1v1 the Night King. He's also still alive. I won't believe otherwise. I think he made it too. Good on you, Renly.
1: Jared Kozel from Twitter writes, own to John and Barrick for distilling the truth about death. The enemy always wins. We still need to fight him. Hashtag the great war. Hashtag warriors of light.
2: Next, we have two parts Rai who says Sam and Gilly for finding dragonglass curing grayscale and oh yeah figuring out that jon is the rightful heir to the iron throne
0: matt hayes owned a drogon my dude enters the scene's like a badass and he saved some of our favorite characters in the
1: finale hashtag viserion he's coming for you John from twitter writes i gotta go with jamie fucking lannister for finally coming to his senses and leaving crazy pants cersei hashtag Game of thrones
2: jen calhoun at calhouner says owned to dollarus ed for somehow managing to survive another season Hashtag, how many times can I give my season own to Ed? Hashtag, what does Ed may never die? <laughs> yes.
0: it's good. At Beauty Brienne, the Brienne of Tarth of Twitter. Rose. Hey, buddy. I'm going to throw this one to Theon for his entire arc and for not giving up. Hashtag, what does not kill you? Hashtag, makes you rise harder and stronger. And I'm going to add in, what does Ed may never die?
1: What does Ed may
2: never what die? What does may never die? At
1: Bob is going ham on Twitter writes, it's a great... Twitter username. I gotta give my own to Danny for having to rise above all the mistakes Tyrion and Jon made to save the day and keep the realm safe.
2: At Jara Lim on Twitter, own to Arya and Walder Frey's face. Best season opening ever. Hashtag winter came for House Frey.
0: Jeff, you get the final own. Oh, wow. The penultimate own of season seven from Rune on Twitter. Own to the loot train battle, despite its terrible name. Some of my best spent minutes ever.
1: Bold. The final own for season seven comes from Amanda... Barden on Twitter, who writes, Own to Game of Owns listeners, whose hilarious owns made me laugh out loud every week. Also, hashtag Game Bowl 2K19. How am I getting these? <laughs> every single Game Bowl.
2: Just coincidence. Did you this up? Just yeah, coincidence.
1: Just, just coincidence. <laughs> the Hound promised. He did promise.
2: Thank you so much to everybody who sent in their thank owns you. this entire season. Thank you Amanda for pointing out exactly what we have been saying and thinking and feeling that this is our favorite thing to read everybody's owns. So thank you everybody who's participated and if you want to continue to send in owns because we are not going anywhere, you can send in your owns for the chapters which we'll talk about in a second here as we start back on our read through. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Game of Vons, or on Facebook by searching for Game of Thrones or by sending us an email to contact at Game dot com.
0: Thank you to all of our guests this season who joined us and I don't know, talking out this phenomenon of Game of Thrones and its seventh season, getting more viewers than it ever has before, going places that television hasn't gone before. And taking our characters to places that we're not sure they're actually going to (laughs) go. It's been fun. (laughs) Thank you to all of them. And thank you to Hannah for always hanging out with me and talking to me about Game of Thrones and Harry Potter and everything else. Mm -mm. (laughs) Literally um, any story. Or if I read something, it's like, hey, I know that you haven't read this. And I know that you have no idea who this author is or whatever. But let me tell you the whole plot and the (laughs) world that it lives in. And, and, you know, just what do you think?
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) So thank you. I love it. And we, of course, want to thank Jeff for coming on with us. You've been with us a couple of times, but it's been really, really, really fun to talk about Season 7 with you. So thanks so much for for joining us. Yeah, thanks
1: for having me. It was always fun and a pleasure to to chat with you guys. And it's exciting now that you guys are getting back into the books again. So I I know, I'm uh, so excited. Get get some real loans into you guys and uh, read along with you when... uh, what, what, what chapter are you guys doing next? From, I, I forgot to ask you guys before we even start recording. Oof.
2: That's a real, we really need yeah. to know the answer to that Let question.
1: me look it up real quick. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to cue you guys up. No, oh, uh, you're perfect. No,
2: it's not. I'm, like, I'm going to
0: come in right after that and it's going to sound so planned. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I know. I can just go to com.
2: Plug, plug, plug.
0: Right? I'll go to A Feast of Dragons <laughs> and I'll see the last episode we did. We did Danny 4 and Brian 5, so it should be Sam and John, if I'm correct.
2: No, it's That's a good, Sam 3, Jamie 3.
0: I'm almost a nerd, <laughs> so Sam, Sam 3 and Jamie 3.
2: If you want to follow along with us, if you want to read along with us, if you want to participate, you can find our entire reading order over at afeastwithdragons.com. And Jeff actually had an integral hand in creating this reading list, so... Thanks so much for doing that. And we're excited to kind of dive back into to the books as we hopefully get to Winds of Winter.
1: It's always fun listening to you guys go through the uh, through the books, and I'm excited. And you got two good chapters ahead of you, and uh, I think we had talked previously about coming and doing some chapters together at some point in the future. And so maybe I'll see you guys in a, in a month or two. Or hundred percent. We just have a a stretch of chapters that are here in this this midpoint of a
0: feast of dragons, while a feast for crows and dance are still so clashing i guess in the way that we put it all sequentially together that's kind of a really interesting time because a lot of different points in the plot for all these characters are kind of in the middle and they're cooking and we were like are we gonna really have to stop this for season seven a few weeks away from it because we had other episodes to put out from con of thrones with uh awan and with paula so yeah this is like a good moment to to jump right back into it now that we've definitively closed everything out with you
2: so the fun is just beginning yeah um, Jeff where can people <laughs> find you
1: I'm on Twitter at BrendanBfish Fish and on Reddit at BrendanBfish B Fish and yeah those are the two primary spots where you'll find me the most and yeah I, I, I don't recommend following me but I mean if you want to <laughs> feel free he has objectivity on his Twitter feed <laughs> I have feed. lots of objectivity
2: my favorite tweets of yours are when you say I would love it if everybody would just unfollow me <laughs> <laughs> Because same <laughs> <laughs> please
0: that's this is it. This has been our final episode of the seventh season.
2: It's been really, really amazing, sweeties, honestly. and i it's been amazing, sweeties. And I talked about this a little bit on our episode with with Brizzy, but the opportunity that we've had to interact with the community this season and to have so many amazing guests like Jeff participating with us. And I just feel like it's been a really incredible season. And so, Thank you to everybody listening. Thank you, thank you to both of you here with me right now. I just—it's been a really magical experience. So, I'm excited to dive back into the books. But it's been—it's been a good one.
0: If you're a new listener and listening in the off season doesn't sound like something you'd be into, at the very least, you know, you just keep Game of Thrones in your rotation and, and check in and see what kind of weird stuff we're up to. Once we get to strange chapters in A Feast of Dragons, like Viterion One and the Ugly yes. Little Girl. You know, yes. there's <laughs> so many neat conversations that come out of it. And even if you're not reading along, it, I think it's it's useful. It's fun to hear these topics be discussed. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out what's going to happen at the end of this story. So we're going to do it all together. It's going to be fun, guys.
2: All right. We'll see everybody soon.
0: See ya.